Turn in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We finished up Haggai, and um, we've got a few more weeks during the Lenten season until Easter, and, and probably after that we'll start a new series. But I was looking through uh, the uh, worship source book that I use uh, a lot for some ideas of what we might preach on, some passages maybe of, for this few Sundays uh, of Lent. And I came across an interesting comment. Let me, uh, let me read it to you. The primary focus of the season of Lent is to explore and deepen a baptismal spirituality that centers on our union with Christ rather than to function only as an extended meditation on Christ's suffering and death. I thought about that and I thought that's, uh, that's not how I've been thinking about it. I've thought of Lent as a time to relive Christ's suffering and death, a time of extended confession of sin and repentance. Frankly, I thought about it in pretty negative, somber terms. But here was the suggestion that it ought to be a time of learning the significance of our baptism, of growing in our understanding of how to live the Christian life. A a more positive time of seizing all that we have in Christ. That certainly matches the practice of the early church, where Lent was a time when um, new believers uh, were trained, those who wished to profess their faith on Easter morning. So this morning, I want to take us to uh, Romans chapter 6, because it's the greatest text I know on baptismal spirituality, as the worship uh, source book uh, suggested. So so I'll read the whole chapter. We're not going to exhaust this whole chapter, but let me just read it. It's all uh, one, one great truth. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no, has no, no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we say? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know 
that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching which you, to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body to, in, in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now, uh, you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This chapter has two parts, verses 1 to 14, verses 15 down to uh, 33, the end of the chapter. It's a rich and powerful text. We could never, ever think we could exhaust it in one Sunday morning, even if we went through the lunch hour. I I, I looked at a commentary I have from Dr. Jim Boyce. He took no less than nine sermons to preach through this chapter. So we're only presenting an overview this morning. Two truths, one from the first 14 verses, one from the second part of the chapter. Two truths, here they are. First of all, baptism represents our union with Christ. Baptism represents our union with Christ. The big question in this chapter is whether, as Christians, we can continue to sin. Some people have argued, some people criticize the Apostle Paul, arguing that if you preach that you can sin and God will just forgive you, then why stop sinning? Well, you ought to sin more. Let God show how really gracious and merciful he is. Of course, those people were mocking Paul's preaching of the gospel. But it shows how radical the grace of God is that it could be caricatured in that way that that God just forgives endless sin. When, When we come to him, he forgives us. So Paul addresses these critics by pointing us back to that baptism. For our baptism represents our union with Christ. Now, if our baptism is just a man-made tradition, washing someone with water, it's pretty powerless. might make your face clean, but it doesn't do much more. At best, it could remind us of a special sacred day back there somewhere. But the baptism instituted by Jesus is a sign of much greater things. Our baptism in water is the outward expression of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something no one could observe, but something which is life-changing. Now there's a great deal of confusion when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second great experience of God's grace somewhere later after we come to know the Lord as our Savior, in which we re-experience 
the, uh, the events of Pentecost, probably associated with speaking in tongues and things like that. That's wrong. That's wrong. Throughout the New Testament, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is used seven times. Six of the seven either are talking about the day of Pentecost to come or reflecting back on the day of Pentecost. Six of the seven speak of the day of Pentecost. That's a day when Christ gave his spirit to the church after he was enthroned in heaven. It's a great, unrepeatable event. The beginning of a whole era where the church has a spirit indwelling it. But in those references, there's one reference, and only one, which tells us the continuing significance of spirit baptism, what it means for us today. That one reference is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13. I'll read it to you. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The point is God has given us his spirit who joins us to Christ, and we become part of the body of Christ. That act of God giving us his spirit and joining us to Christ, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a a separate thing from our salvation. This is our salvation, so much so that Romans 8 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So baptism in water is the outward visible sign of the inner reality of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that work of the Spirit is to join us in spiritual union with Christ Jesus. Actually, when Paul says we've been united with Christ, he uses an interesting word. He uses a horticultural word, which means to be grafted into the root. In other words, the Holy Spirit has grafted us into the root of Christ's life so that his past is our past and his future is our future. We are joined to him. We are part of his body. We are one with Christ. Based on that reality then, which is what baptism is about, Paul makes a powerful point here in the first part of Romans 6. He said, if you have been baptized into Christ, that is, joined to Christ, united with Christ, that means you are united with him in death and resurrection. Apart from any merit on your part, what was true of him has now become true of you. When he died, when he was freed from the power of sin in the world, you were joined with him. So your old self died and you were set free from the power of sin in the world. And when he rose from the dead, when he was forever freed from the power of death hanging over him, when you joined to Jesus, you were given eternal life and freed from the power of death to defeat you. Baptism represents our union with Christ, specifically here, Paul says, in his death and his resurrection. How can we gain all that without earning it? Well, it's kind of like marriage. A person gets rich and famous because of his or her brilliance and hard work, and then that person marries. 
perhaps someone who has nothing. And what happens? The spouse suddenly shares the wealth. What's his or hers is mine. What's true of him or her is true of me now. So it is with us when we're joined to Christ. The Father loves us and treats us as his sons. In other words, you may look the same and sound the same to those around you, but if you're in Christ, you're not the same anymore. You've been freed from the tyranny of Satan and sin and death, not because you're good enough or have done enough, but because you're joined to Jesus so that what is true of him is true of you. And you've been given new life, not because you earned it, but because you're joined to Jesus who rose from the dead. So you've been given a new status as a son, an heir of God, and a great new powerful living, the spirit of Christ that's now in you. So back to the original question of the chapter. What is needed for you to stop sinning? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 11. Count, calculate, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In other words, your union with Christ is already a reality. What is needed is for you to get your head around it, to believe it so much that you begin to live in light of that. Live out your new identity in Christ as one who's dead to sin and alive to God. What does that look like? Let me just give you one great illustration from the life of St. Augustine. As you know, may know, before he was a Christian, he was a very immoral man, lacking any sexual self-control. And then he became a Christian. He began to understand what Christ has done, what Christ has made him. Sometime after he became a Christian, he was out walking in one of his old mistresses showed up. She immediately began to flirt with him and aggressively pursue him, knowing that she was someone whom he was especially attracted to. He responded politely. Augustine did. Thank you. That's great. Glad to see you too. But no. No thanks. And he started to walk away. Suddenly it occurred to this woman that he must not have recognized her. So she turned to him and got right in front of him and looked him right in the eye and said bluntly, Augustine, it's me. To which he replied, yes, I know. But it's not me anymore. Joined to Christ, therefore dead to sin, alive unto God. That's what our baptism is about. It speaks of that life-changing union with Christ. Then there's another truth in the second half of this chapter, not that we've exhausted the first half. And that truth is just be careful 
whom you choose to obey. Be careful whom you choose to obey. At the beginning of our Christian life, when we're baptized, it, it, it declares our allegiance to Christ. If you grew up in a church and you've seen lots of people baptized, it may seem like baptism doesn't mean that much. It's a, a, a quaint but rather uncontroversial uh, religious rite. But let me tell you, if you grew up Muslim or an Orthodox Jew or part of any of a great number of tribal religions, you know that to be baptized will be a costly act. Oh, you can talk to the Christians, you can debate the Christians, you can learn about the Christians, but to be, to be baptized signals a change of allegiance. It says you have abandoned your family's religion and committed yourself to a new master, Jesus Christ. And in many places in the world today, that will cost you your job, your family, perhaps your life. Unlike those religions, we tend to think that embracing the gospel really has little to do with our allegiance. Because we tend to think our allegiance is really to ourselves. And everything else just kind of fits into that. Even our faith just kind of fits into our allegiance to ourselves. But what we fail to realize is we've chosen the most fickle master of all. We've made ourselves slaves to our own sinful desires. In other words, all those religions are right in believing that we all serve some God, and that's to the exclusion of all other gods. Jesus himself said that. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You have to choose. And in a moment of clarity, Bob Dylan agreed. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, in our baptism, we acknowledge that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we were serving. We renounced every other master. Great. So far. But in verse 16, the apostle throws in another complication. He says, in effect, be careful, though, when your actions start to renegotiate that allegiance. Be careful when you begin to choose to obey something other than the Lord Jesus. Listen to verse 16. Don't you know when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, our baptism is a once-for-all thing, for it, it, it bears testimony to 
our once for all cleansing by the blood of Christ. But we live in a rough and tumble world where all kinds of pressures and voices are calling us. And we're making decisions all the time. And if in a moment of temptation, we offer the members of our body as servants to sin, we seem to have changed our our, our allegiance, have we not? We have again made ourselves servants of a sinful master by choosing to obey. Whether that be a false god or whether it be our own sinful desires. I'm not saying God's grace can no longer reach us. But when we make such choices, we throw in our lot with the enemy. And sometimes we never find a way of escape again. We see this with drug addicts. They can get clean and make resolute promises to stay clean. But if in a moment of weakness they return to the drugs, they may never escape again. So the book of Hebrews severely warns us about this. There we read, it is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Oh, don't trifle with God's grace. Be careful whom you choose to obey. Now, the history of the children of Israel provides a powerful illustration of this. God supernaturally delivered them from uh, their their slavery in Egypt. He parted the sea and, 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 and led them out to freedom. But it was not an absolute freedom, a freedom to do whatever they pleased. It, nine times in those opening chapters of Exodus where it's talking about this, we hear the Lord's command to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. God was not freeing them to a life of uh, aimless self-destruction. He was delivering them from their slavery to a tyrant that they might serve the Lord who made them and loved them. And so they were delivered, and they came through the Red Sea that was parted, and as the mist was driven across them, we read in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized into Moses. Interesting reference to baptism. Their allegiance to the Lord was sealed. The Lord's people, he had delivered them. It baptized them, so to speak. And then what happened? Only a few days out of Egypt, they began to complain and say, we want to go back. Suddenly, the slavery of Egypt began to look like a resort to them. Why? We sat around and we ate the best of food and drank the best of wine. Are you kidding They were slaves making bricks while the Egyptians were killing their babies. If ever God's people chose to change their allegiance 
and forsake him, it was Israel in the wilderness. But God's long-suffering and patient, full of grace and mercy. They complained about no food, and God gave them manna from heaven. They complained about no water, and he caused a spring to spring out from the rock. They complained about having no meat, and he sent quail down so, so low they could catch them with their hands and eat. They even began to bow down and worship the idols of the new land, and God kept calling them back to himself. You've got to read Psalm 106 sometimes. It recounts this life of God's people choosing disobedience again and again and again, thus locking themselves or committing themselves to a different master and God graciously bringing them back to himself again and again and again. But God did not put up with their rebellion forever. The day came when he sent their enemies to destroy them. They hauled them off as slaves again, burned their cities. They were captives in Babylon. Be careful who you choose to obey. But when you obey someone, you become his or her slave. Folks, this is the other side of this matter of continuing to sin. First, the Lord tells us we don't have to continue to sin. For we've been joined to Christ and he set us free. And then the Lord tells us we had better not continue to sin. For to choose to obey sin is to enslave ourselves to another master. It calls into question our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what this passage in Romans 6 is about. Knowing the truth and therefore enjoying our deliverance. Two parts of the chapter are very similar. They both start with the question, shall we continue to sin? It's in verse 1, it's again in verse 15. And they both answer the question with a resounding, by no means. Verse 1, again in verse 15. But then comes another question, which is the key. Don't you know? Don't you know? And what is it that we need to know? Well, according to verse 3, don't you know that you were baptized into union with Christ? And according to verse 16, don't you know that you would become slaves to whomever you choose to obey? You see, here we see the grace of God at work. He has united us with Christ in his death and resurrection. He has explained to us our new identity so that we no longer have to sin. And he has established that we are responsible for our choices. So as we offer ourselves to him more and more, we grow in holiness and righteousness. But if we offer ourselves to sin, we become slaves to sin. God has not left us in the dark. He has saved us through the work of Jesus and has explained our new status that we might live it out. And now he calls us to faithfulness, to obey the truth, bringing good results when we do and disaster when we don't. Well, make no mistake, the God of grace is on our side. He has done everything we need, told us everything we need to know. He's treating us like sons, warning us that the, of the wages of sin and holding before us the gift of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, none of us has a very good handle on our new identity in Christ.
If we did, our lives would be quite different. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think about this and meditate on it and learn what it means. This reality that we can't see. This reality that few others recognize. That you, by your Spirit, have joined us to the risen Christ, making us dead to sin and alive to you. Give us grace to live like that. And then, Father, we live in a day where people's choices, just uh, we just assume they don't mean very much. And yet you show us that to choose to sin is to plunge ourselves back into slavery to sin. Oh, God, give us grace to recognize the temptation, to remember our new identity in Christ, and to be faithful. We have so much to learn about this, Lord, and yet it's so crucial that we know it. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.